I'm sure you saw the title of today's podcast and went, my goodness, I'm not 100% sure that I even want to listen to this. I mean, torture? Yeah, uh, I'm going to talk about it today, but here's the deal. I'm going to talk about it in a way that maybe you never even thought about it before. It's actually part of our Christian history and kind of an important part, especially in light of things that are going on in the world today. Uh, but before I get into that, before I dive into this teaching, I want to remind you that we have a conference coming up in Edinburgh, Scotland, coming up April 15th through 19th called the Kingmakers Conference. The Kingmakers event is not about you being a king. It's not about you being royalty. It's about you living a life of empowering others to their destiny. That's what it means to be a kingmaker. The Bible says that he lifts the poor from the ash heap and makes us to sit with princes. In other words, he lifts us from the dust and puts us on the throne with him. Isn't that what Jesus said in Revelation 3:21? To him who overcomes, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. To be a kingmaker is to see people through the eyes of God, to see people with divine uh, uh, optics, to be able to look past the costume, all the lies and the labels they believed, to see what God has known about who they are from before the beginning. And when you begin to see uh, other people that way, you'll probably see yourself differently as well. But it begins with seeing him rightly, seeing who he is rightly. And our teachers at this event, I'll be there with you, but we're also going to have Jim and Mary Baker. And I got to tell you guys, Jim is one of the finest teachers of the Bible on earth today. There's tons of people are beginning to find out if you have uh, any interest in understanding what it means to be a Christian and your relationship with money, how to have a healthy relationship with finances, get Jim's Wealth with God program. You can look it up online, Jim Baker, B-A-K-E-R, Wealth with God. It will absolutely revolutionize the way that you engage with finance. You begin to realize some things about money that the Bible has been telling us all along. Many many people have come along into Christianity and used, in a sense, the, the whole word of faith concept to feed the greed in the hearts of people. But what Jim awakens within us is this revelation that God desires to pour wealth through you, not just to you, but through you to bless others. There's needs in hurting people all around us. And when your heart is shifted from wanting just for yourself to the point where you want to actually bless other people, and you live to give, in a sense, as a, as a dear friend of ours used to say, when you live to give, you find yourself in a place where uh, it feels like the favor of God just opens up over you, like, a, like the windows of a heaven open. And uh, Jim will teach you how to live with that perspective, that mindset, being smart and wise in the things of finances. So Jim Baker, Wealth with God, I highly encourage the program. Jim and Mary will be there with us. Mary, Mary will be leading worship. There'll be some amazing, amazing surprises that we have in store for you. Anyway, April 15th through 19th, Kingmakers Conference. To sign up for that event, go to billvanderbush.com. Click on the Kingmakers UK link. There's a US and a UK link. Go to the UK link and you can get the ball rolling there. It's coming down to the wire, I know, so uh, it's it's a good time to join us in Scotland in April. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit today about something that was triggered by a gathering that I had with some dear friends. Every year, 
a handful of friends and I get together and we, um, we have a retreat of sorts. Now, this is a different kind of a retreat. This isn't a Bible study retreat. This isn't a deep teaching kind of a retreat, but it is one of the deepest retreats that I do. And it's just a personal retreat between some friends and I who've known each other for many, many years. And this year we went to a city in America that's got a lot of, uh, got a lot of attractions and things to it. And we typically, you know, kind of run through the list of all of the fun things we'd like to do while we're there. And, uh, and, and on this particular trip, we walked by an attraction that we had never even entertained before. And it sounds kind of crazy to even consider this one, but you know, when you get a bunch of friends together and you're just looking for something just, just to generate laughs. I mean, laughter, it's just like a comedic routine when, when all of those guys are just hanging out together. It's just one joke after another, after another. And so you look for things that are funny. On this day, recently, we passed by a museum, but it was unlike any museum I've ever seen. It was called the Medieval Torture Museum. And so one of us, I won't mention who, said, let's, it was me, let's go, let's go check this out. This looks, this looks kind of amazing. Like we could never do this if our wives were here. Kind of the deal, right? And, uh, uh, and so we got tickets, got into this museum and I got to tell you, first off, it was just a bad idea, right? It was a really, really bad idea. He said, Bill, why would you do such a thing? Especially as a Christian, why would you go to such a place? You know, when you're with friends, sometimes you just do silly things. And this was a silly thing. It was, it was, it was crazy. And we get in here and it's, I mean, it's de- decked out. It's a good museum. Man. It's a quality, quality museum with some of the craziest contraptions you've ever seen from the medieval era. And as we were going through this, I, I started to notice something that, that really had me intrigued. What I began to notice was that the dozens and dozens of contraptions that we were looking at, many of them were invented by the church for the punishing of heretics, for the public torture and execution of those the church deemed to be heretics. We got to one room and a friend of mine turns to me and we were looking at one contraption that had the word heretic actually in it. And he goes, you know, in another time, that had probably been you. And I started to realize, you know, that is the case, actually. I mean, there was a time in history when Christians, the church, the organized, recognized spiritual authority on planet Earth determined that it was a good idea to invent ways to inflict pain, punishment, torture, and death on people who thought differently than they did. People who seemed to stray just outside the bounds of orthodoxy were called upon to recant or or be executed. It's capitulation by force. It's, it's bring everybody into a state of agreement on the exact same nuances of doctrine by force, by threat of punishment. And you got to stop and think about it. This is where religion will take you. 
And I'm talking about religious systems that, that don't mirror the image and likeness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. But they grab a hold of Old Testament ideology, Old Covenant ideology, at a time when people weren't even listening to God. See, so much of what happened within the Old Covenant has been dragged into the New Covenant and and applied at a New Covenant day, not realizing that Jesus shut the Old Covenant down once for all, and even in his own lifetime, when his disciples were offended with the, the rejection that they faced in his city, they asked Jesus Christ, they said, can we call down fire like Elijah? And, and the idea here was, hey, listen, Elijah did what he did, calling down fire from heaven by the power of God to consume the prophets of Baal. And, and, and if he did that by the power of God and God doesn't change, then here we are facing opposition like Elijah did. So can we do the same thing Elijah did and get the same result Elijah got? And Jesus turns to them and he rebukes them. He says, you guys don't know, and this is the phrase he uses, what spirit you are of. You say, was Elijah not operating by the power of God? Elijah was operating in an Old Testament, Old Covenant mindset. And in that mindset, you got to understand the children of Israel had, by and large, rejected the voice and the word of the Lord. God would send prophets to speak to people, but it's a singular person speaking to a a rebellious children of Israel who would more than likely torture or kill the prophet or leave them in a very isolated, lonely state because they didn't want to hear what they had to say anyway. And if the prophet engaged another country or another culture that was trying to wipe out the children of Israel, then calls upon the power of God to validate the word of the Lord over his life. And in this case, you get Elijah calling down fire, not upon people, but upon an altar to validate the word of the Lord over what he had just spoken, that this is the word of God. This is the power of God. And the prophets of Baal have no power. This is the power of God. The fire of God came down and consumed the altar, the stones, the wood, even the water in the trench around the sacrifice. But now what the disciples want to do is what? They want to call down fire on people. Elijah called down fire to validate that the word of the Lord was active in his life. These people want to call down fire. The disciples want to call down fire to exact revenge and bring destruction to other people made in the image and likeness of God. And you often say, perhaps, you might think, well, God did some really, really crazy things to wipe people out within the context of the Old Testament. And you know, in the context of the Old Covenant, the rules of engagement were really clear. It was an era of sowing and reaping, a time where you do this and this happens to you. You you do this and blessing happens to you. You do good and blessing happens to you. You do bad and curses are attached to that. And so the multiplication of the blessings and cursings was all based upon our own behavior. 
But this is a time when, again, people didn't want a relationship of union with God. What they wanted was a relationship with rules, a relationship with law that gives your ego, your pride, a chance to sort of stand up and say, look, look how well I'm doing it. Look how well I believe versus what somebody else believes. You could judge another person against yourself by how well you kept the rules. See, grace doesn't allow for the egoic pride of humanity to stand and say, look what I did. And it doesn't allow you to judge yourself against someone else. Grace belongs to those who don't deserve it. Grace is for those who can't maintain their own uh, uh, keeping of the rules. They, 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 they've given up and they feel like they've, they've disqualified themselves forever. And for them, grace is, is what exists. And this is what the grace of the cross actually brought us. See, the cross is the end of violence. The cross is the end of bloodshed. The cross is the point at which Peter begins to realize why Jesus said, put away your sword. The cross is the end of our, our uh, uh, obsession with torture. And yet at the very heart of Christianity is the most brutal torture device itself. And that is the cross. I'm walking around this medieval torture museum as I begin to read the descriptions of each of these things and why they constructed these things for certain heretics. You begin to realize that what was being threatened each time by each heresy, uh, or at least what they said was a heresy, was that the power of the church of that day or the financial institution that had been built and was supported by really the sin of the people, was being threatened by people who came around and preached that Jesus forgives sins. It had come to be believed in medieval times that only priests and only the church could forgive sin. But the idea that that heretics were expounding upon uh, heretics like Madame Guyon and Miguel Molinos and, and uh, Francis Fenelon and people who were deemed to be heretics throughout, throughout uh, the ages, these people were proclaiming revelations that they had received from the Holy Spirit validated in the scriptures themselves about the switch over from the old covenant system of sowing and reaping to a new covenant relationship with God of union, where we had come to an awareness that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for all of our sin, past, present, and future. See, the church didn't believe this. The church told you back in these days, in the 11th century, we began to believe that that from baptism back, all your sins are forgiven, but not the new ones you commit, the new ones you've got to pay for. And 1199, the Pope of that day decided that he was going to create a new system of rooting out heresies. And so he told everybody, this is what you do. He says, you have legal right, according to the church, to identify any heretic you can. And you know what the reward for identifying a heretic was? Listen to this. You get all of their possessions. Well, can you imagine now what happened in the world in that day? Well, suddenly heretics were being identified everywhere and the church killed heretics left and right with abandon. And now you had to come up with ways 
to kill heretics. And not just that, but how about if we do this in, in the most brutal and gruesome way possible, not just to teach the heretic a lesson, but to teach everyone a lesson that you don't, you don't align with this kind of believing. You understand that this is the same reason why the disciples were crucified when they left after the resurrection. The, the apostles went out all over the world and what they did was they confronted established religious systems who had created nations full of paying and returning customers, people who were working for, for favor from God through whatever means that that particular religion told them they had to. They had established a religious business that controlled the minds and hearts of a nation. And here came the apostles preaching that the end of religion is Jesus Christ, the end of your, your need to, to uh, adhere, in a sense, to a set of, of rules was now wrapped up within the sacrifice of Christ himself or wrapped up within the gift of grace provided for by Jesus. The grace on the cross took care of all of our sin. And therefore, there was a, a, a backlash upon the apostles who came in threatening the established religious systems that they encountered, pagan worship systems, pagan belief systems, because every one of those had this one thing in common, and that was they all told you what you had to do to be right with God, what you had to do to get in favor with their gods. And, and yet, when you come into a system like that and you tell them Jesus did it all and Jesus was sufficient, you say, Bill, does that mean there's no more rules? Listen, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of of sin and death. There's two laws at work in this world, the law of Christ and the law of religion. The law of Christ is the law of life in Christ. And what is the life of Christ? It's the power of the resurrection. So here's the deal. On the cross, Jesus took you with him he took all of your sin, took your old nature, your generational curses, the power of darkness, the power of sin, death, hell, and the devil was publicly made a show of, a display of, a mockery of. He mocked the power of sin on the cross by putting to death, the Bible says, in his flesh, that which was contrary to us. This is Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. He put to death in his flesh all of the commandments of ordinances that were against us. In other words, he put to death, the, he nailed the rule book to the cross, took you into the grave with him, took you out of the grave with him, brought you out with him in newness of life and resurrection power. And you know, the story of the prodigal son, which I've been preaching and teaching on a lot lately, the prodigal son story has a major point of offense in it, and you feel it at the beginning. You feel it when the father gives freedom to the son that no earthly father would ever, 
even think to give. When somebody comes to you, when a kid comes to you and says, give me all of your money so I can go waste it. You know, let's say your kid comes to you and says, I want my inheritance now so that I can go waste it in Las Vegas in the worst way possible. No good father you would think would ever, ever empower or enable their son to do that. And yet, the way Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, the father does that very thing. So we are uncomfortable with the measure of freedom that God gives us. We're uncomfortable with what God lets people get away with. It's, it's very uncomfortable to us. Why? Because we feel like if we, if we could just get everybody to act right, then this world would be a better place. Well, I'm sure that's the case, but the reality is, is God didn't create this world for us to be controlled by one another, but he gave us this world so that we could be free to love him and therefore love one another, which is why Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ is recognizing that when we came out of the grave with him, we came out with an offensive level of freedom. Paul said it like this, all things are permissible, but not everything edifies. All things are lawful, but not everything is beneficial. In other words, if you go out and try to sin right now, I'm pretty sure a big old angel's not gonna come out, stop you, slap your hand, tell you that's a naughty thing, you shouldn't do that. God will actually let you do things that are contrary to the values of the kingdom, the values of his heart, the values of his nature, even the desire of his own will. God will give you the freedom to make the choice to go and even do things that will destroy you. Stop and think about that for just a moment. And if you get offended at that reality, then you can identify with the elder brother in the prodigal son story, who when the father receives the wayward son back home, Nobody is angrier than the one who followed the rules perfectly. See, the issue here is an anger at the Father's grace, an anger at the Father's freedom, an anger at what God seems to allow people to get away with. He gives us a tremendous amount of freedom. Can I tell you good news today? The freedom that he gives you is not meant for you and I to take and go our own way to follow our own selfishness, when we begin to see that God in Christ gave his own life to set us free, we may ask a very important question. What are we free for? And what are we free from? Well, let me answer the second one first. Number one, you're free from the power of sin. You're free from the bondage and the chains of sin, the, the addictions that you think you can't get over. You are free from chains of sin and addiction. You are free to, second part, love him without limitation. That means you and I can enjoy the presence of God without limits. The Bible says you and I are seated in heavenly places in Christ right now. You're a multidimensional being, and even though you sit here or stand here, wherever you happen to be listening to this broadcast right now, you are physically within this world, able to experience this world with your five senses. However, Paul said that right now, present tense, you're seated in heavenly places in Christ. That is the seen realm around you, 
that is temporal, passing away, is beautiful gift of God for us. It is not as valuable as the unseen spiritual realm. It's not a different place. It's a different dimension. We don't ascend upward. We ascend into a reality that is closer than your next breath. And the the beautiful thing is, is in that world, there is no hindrance between you and God at all in any way, shape, or form. No distance, no separation. But you know, when you begin to allow yourself to become aware of the victory and the joy and the peace that you have in that realm, being seated on the throne, who can threaten you in that place? Who can threaten you when you are seated in Christ? See, no one can truly threaten the eternal you. That's the spirit, the spirit of of Christ that resurrected us from the dead and seated us with him. It's unthreatenable. The only thing that can be threatened is this temporal, physical existence. And when we think this is all there is, wow, we become addicted to all kinds of things physically. We give ourselves over to physical selfishness and pleasures and all those things. But the greatest pleasure there is in all of the universe and time and in eternity is to be united with and to know God and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And when we find ourselves anchored in that realm, then the things of this earth go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And here now in our our existence in this earth, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, we can draw from the endless oasis of joy and peace. We can draw from the power of God to bring healing from that world into this world for there's no sickness and infirmity that is allowed in the throne room of God. In you and in me and in Jesus, in eternity, there is no sickness, death, pain, dying, sorrow. Everything's beautiful, nothing hurts, and we can find ourselves living from that reality, more aware of that reality than we are of this one, so we draw the joy and the bliss of that reality and we pull it into the the circumstances and difficulties of the moments that we're in right now. I've preached on this a lot lately, but in Psalm 27, when David says, uh, uh, and now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me, and I'll offer in your tabernacle sacrifices of joy, singing praises unto the Lord. What is David saying here? He's saying, I would really like God to remove my enemies, but he's not going to do that. I'd really like God to take me out uh, of, of this situation, but he's not going to do that. God leaves the circumstances right where they are. And God, who is our glory and the lifter of our head, does one simple thing, and that is just simply shift David's perspective. And now David recognizes where he wants to go to a distant place is merely a different dimension, and he's already there. And he begins to sing praise, offering sacrifices of joy. And in that place, he discovers that's where he does battle wars from, you could say. He wars from those heavenly places, not by getting his eyes on the things of this earth, but by continuing to let his eyes stay fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What did I learn in the medieval torture museum? I learned that religion left alone and to itself to create an organization where you have to go through humanity's gauntlet of rules in order to be accepted by God will find itself justifying the most brutal of treatments from one person to another. 
in the name of God. But when we live by the power of Jesus Christ, we'll love our enemies, we'll bless those who curse us, we'll pray for those who despitefully use us, and we'll do good to those who mistreat us. And listen, nobody can be your enemy without your permission. And so I invite you today to just lay down all offense that you have against the people in in your life that just aren't quite measuring up. And lay down your offense at God for, for the fact that he seems to be giving them permission to, to, to do whatever it seems that they want to do and recognize that he who began a good work in you and in them will be faithful to complete it. He's really good at completing the work that he starts. Today, listen, if you say, Bill, I've got my eyes fixed on this earth, listen, I invite you to fix your eyes on Jesus, to behold him. And I would say it like this, say, Holy Spirit, would you reveal the Father and the Son to me? May the Father be revealed to me. May the Son be revealed to me. Jesus, reveal yourself. And Jesus says, I'll come and I'll manifest myself to you. And then let your eyes be open to see as he shows up throughout your day in unexpected ways. And what a beautiful mystery the gospel is. The glorious mystery that draws us into an awareness of our union with Christ. Listen, you can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. You can support us by going to VanderbushMinistries.com or BillVanderbush.com. Go to the Give page and you're welcome to support us there. We thank you for all of your prayers as we continue to proclaim the good news, the grace of Jesus Christ from coast to coast, nation to nation, all over the world. Until next time, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.